and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis, living up a mountain with the goats, where I belong. And I'm Leah Richards, feline oobleck. It's that time of year again. It is the Ig Nobel Prize. It's brought to you by the people at Improbable Research. And whilst we may be some of last year's winners, we have a whole batch of brand new scientific accomplishment to deliver right into your ears. Now on the overview, do we feel like it's maybe a little bit less weird this year? If anything, this year's prize winners have the most applicable science to everyone's daily life. Yeah, they're the more obviously scientific, which I feel like is slightly less fun, but we've still got some good stuff in here to talk about. Bear in mind that the whole Ig Nobel thing got started back in 1991, with some prizes including Edward Teller, father of the hydrogen bomb, and the first champion of the Star Wars weapon system for his work towards changing the meaning of peace as we know it. And the economics prize for Michael Milken, titan of Wall Street and father of the junk bond, to whom the world is, quote, indebted. <laughs> the whole point is to celebrate research, which seems odd and still has value. So let's get going. Hey, you had a kidney stone once, right? How was that for you? Not fun. It was a bad time for all involved, and I was the only one involved, so... The kidney stone that I had, I actually shook loose by going jogging that one time. I've avoided it ever since. But it turns out that just the physical action of shaking my body up and down for like 15-20 minutes was enough to dislodge a very painful chunk of solidified calcium and pee junk in my kidney and then it make its very painful descent through the left side of my body and outwards. And it took, what, three days for it to make its whole way down? It felt a lot longer. So wouldn't it be nice if there was something you could do to move it along quicker? If that's something to do was fun as well, then that would make the whole thing much more pleasurable. So the US-based team behind the study Validation of a Functional Pilocalesial Renal Model for the Evaluation of Renal Calculi Passage While Riding a Roller Coaster heard from some of their patients that a ride on Big Thunder Mountain at Disney World really did the trick. At the time, it felt like Big Thunder Mountain was inside my body, so it checks out to me. They tested the hypothesis by taking a model kidney on the roller coaster. They even held it in the right place. They stuffed it in somebody's backpack, just between two researchers who sat at different places up and down the length of the Big Thunder Mountain carriages, so they could see if it was in somebody at around about kidney height, in around about kidney space in their back, what would happen to a little bit of renal calcili that was rattling around in there. And 60 rides were analysed, independent of the renal calculi volume and location. Front seating on the roller coaster resulted in a passage rate of 4 out of 24. Rear seating on the roller coaster resulted in a passage rate of 23 out of 36, which is pretty good percentages. So hey, if you've got a kidney stone, congratulations. You can actually claim going to Disneyland on the NHS. You can't. You can't. That's not a thing. But I'm imagining a future where we have urology department of every hospital in the world has a small roller coaster that they can run you down when you show up with that particular sort of abdominal pain. Oh, so you've got pain in your side, feels like stabbing, stabbing in the uh, left or right hand side of the body, descending pain, and yep, there's uh, blood in the sample. So tell you what, if you just head on board, what's a good hospital roller coaster name? Maybe Renal Adventure? Head on over to the Alton Wing, and uh, somebody will strap you in. 
I would be interested to see future studies testing rides at different amusement parks. So they did Big Thunder Mountain in Orlando. I want to see what the best one at Disneyland Paris is. I want to see what the best one at Alton Towers is. If not a roller coaster, what else do you think would shake it out? Like, if you were to sit on a tarmac leveler, I reckon that would do the job. I've been on some bus rides that I feel like would do the trick. Oh yeah, Potholes is very much more the NHS's kind of speed. Also, have you ever taken a bus at the seaside? Like... The coach into Swanage on the geography trip was adventurous. Town is steep. So our thanks to this year's Medicine Prize winners, on now to Anthropology, an international team from Sweden, Romania, Denmark, the Netherlands, Germany, UK, Indonesia, Italy, with the prize collected by Thomas Persson and Gabriella Alina Sosiuk for their work on the spontaneous cross-species imitation and interaction between chimpanzees and zoo visitors. Or as is neatly summarised here, chimpanzees imitate humans about as often, and about as well, as humans imitate chimpanzees. Now, I would absolutely swear blind that we already talked about this on the podcast in a previous episode, but we can't find evidence for that anywhere. It's just in my brain that we did. Did we see any chimpanzees talking about humans on the podcast when we were at the zoo? I don't think our local zoo has chimpanzees. They've got gorillas who sometimes stare at you like, wow, what a weird animal. But yeah, actually, actually, I think I probably would listen to a chimpanzee's podcast. I wouldn't understand any of it, but... Now, the point of this research is basically that imitation is a useful social tool and that imitation is a tool for learning. Previously, it's been assumed that in non-human primates, the social function doesn't really get much of a look-in, but all of the evidence for that has been collected from learning-based studies where you're less likely to get social imitation happening. Whereas, if you just observe what's going on at the zoo, you can get lots of pretty naturalistic behaviour going on. People look at the chimpanzees and go, Hey, look at that guy doing this thing. The chimpanzees look at the people and go, Hey, look at that guy doing this thing! Just how much are those guys doing this thing? Well, research is headed to Fervik Zoo, slash the Lund University Primate Research Station, Fervik, in 2013, to ask the questions, Is spontaneous cross-species imitation present in both species? If so, is the extent comparable across the species? Does spontaneous imitation appear to accomplish a social communicative function in cross-species interaction? Is the quality of imitation, in terms of imitative precision, comparable across species? Because the question about quality is very interesting to me in terms of, like, how well a monkey does a human doing a monkey. Do chimpanzees show evidence of imitation recognition in a context in which instances of being imitated are fleeting and immersed in a constant flow of diverse and distracting activities? Like having a bunch of people come and wave their hands at you, as opposed to experimental settings where they're exposed again and again usually by a familiar experimenter. So yeah, people being monkeys and monkeys being people in public. I just want to point out that the librarian of Unseen University Library would be very disappointed in your use of the terminology. My apologies. Uh, I don't know if I can go back and edit in the word ape every time that I've said monkey, but uh, yes, my, my deepest and most sincere apologies. Nerd. We're recording a science podcast.
and some of the actions that they see from public at the zoo and from the Lund Research Station include things like pressing window with hand, clapping, begging, extending arms, pointing lips, waving, yawning, self-hugging, body scratching, all these different things that a chimp could do, that a person could do, and that a person and a chimp could do at each other, and wouldn't you know they did. It's almost as though they're like us. In 42 imitative exchanges, the chimpanzees performed the minimal two turns required by the imitation game criterion. These occasions, 11 were extended imitative exchanges, involving at least three, but up to ten turns of the chimpanzee. So you could imitate a chimpanzee, it would imitate you. It could keep this going, a little volley of waving and clapping hands for quite a while. So our thanks again to this international team, working I guess on the topic of monkey see, monkey do, question mark, exclamation mark. This year's biology prize went to an international team for demonstrating that wine experts can reliably identify, by smell, the presence of a single fly in a glass of wine. Which, to me, sounds like a research topic that came up with and was explored over the course of, like, one very long drunken evening. Looking at the copy of the paper we've got to read over, they've taken this very seriously. I did not know that fruit flies were smelly. They have gone into great details about exactly how smelly the vinegar flies they're looking at are. Apparently, in this case, the female flies produce smells the male flies don't, but the hormone they produce which makes them smell bad is a strong enough flavour that you can tell if a single fly has fallen into your wine. I mean, I say you, a person whose palate is practised. A trained awareness. Yeah. Now, I personally would rely on my own two eyes to spy a wine glass with a fly in it, but also I don't really like wine, so I've not built myself up the palate and sophistication for picking out the micrograms of linalool which they are discussing in the paper. Certainly not with this cold would I be able to smell any micrograms of anything whatsoever. I'm mostly fluid state at this point in time. Unfortunately, the fluid you're producing is not a particularly useful one to anyone else, but the winners of the chemistry prize are the Portuguese team who measured the degree to which human saliva is a good cleaning agent for dirty surfaces. I love the idea that so much science just happens because someone's, like, thinking in a different way about something mundane, so, like, in this case, maybe someone splashed a little bit of something on a table and their first thought to deal with it was to lick their finger and rub it away. Maybe they saw a mother wiping down a child's mucky cheek in public and had the thunderbolt moment. Just, wait, why do we do that? Does it actually work that well? I mean, I would not have expected someone to go into that much detail about how good is spit at cleaning things. Well, they tested spit against some other stuff. Two methylheptane, xylene, and white spirit on different surfaces. Blue, brown, red, and white tempera on oil paintings on gold leaf to see what is doing the most cleaning job? What's achieving the best solubility? If there's enzymatic action, if there's washing action by the water or by contents of the saliva alone. And I'll be gosh darned if saliva doesn't do actually quite an alright job on a lot of surfaces. And they have assessed in great detail the active ingredients in saliva. And it's mostly the enzymes, you guys. You know, when you're chewing on a piece of bread 
and your mouth is watering and producing enzymes to break down that food to help you digest it later. It's the same stuff which lifts the dirt off whichever surface it is you've just licked. Maybe you can be one of those people who helps restore ancient paintings by going into a gallery and licking them. <laughs> it can't be worse than painting a Jesus to look like an ape. I highly recommend not directly licking old paintings. A lot of them literally contain arsenic. And if I end up with anything bad from licking the Mona Lisa, just slap me on a roller coaster. I'm sure it'll be fine. I think you've got to have special keys to get close enough to the Mona Lisa to lick her, you know? Like... <laughs> just tonguing up on the bulletproof glass, like... <laughs> you could maybe lick that printing plate they've got of her for tea towels upstairs, but <laughs> not the original. <laughs> Sell the t-shirt. I licked the Mona Lisa. Actually, no, that sounds like a very different kind of website. Uh, we should move on to the colonoscopy. No, actually, I think this might have to be our first piece of merchandise. If anyone wants to draw that up for us, we'll... Uh... Colonoscopy, please. Please, <laughs> to the colonoscopy. No one on Earth has been this excited to move on to colonoscopies, but in this case, we are looking at particularly unusual ones. Just me and Akira Horiuchi from the Department of Gastroenterology at Showa Inan General Hospital in Komigane, Japan, who bit the bullet of using a small-caliber variable-stiffness colonoscope on himself. The abstract notes that newly developed small-caliber variable-stiffness colonoscope designed for colonoscopy in pediatric patients was especially useful in patients with difficult colonoscopy. And who better to ask if you want repeated study of the effects of drugs or therapies in your colonoscopy than to ask the endoscopist to do it on themselves. And he did. Not just the once, but a couple of times, because he found it so easy. Like, there's a few standout moments of discomfort due to the coiling of the colon, but, as the discussion notes, in our personal experience, self-colonoscopy proved not only to be possible, but simple and efficient. It's not clear what proportion of the ease simplicity was related to the particular endoscope, to the sitting position, or the skill of the endoscopist. The fact that colonoscopy was surprisingly easy with the patient in the sitting position suggests that studies to compare sitting versus lying down with different endoscopies are warranted. Although I might think that uh, Akira Horiuchi might ask somebody else to step in for that one. He has, however, noticed in the paper that the feasibility and discomfort of performing the colonoscopy were different in each session, despite the examiner and the patient being the same person each time. So lots of endoscopists might have to do a lot of self-colonoscopies to be sure we're getting reliable, repeatable results here. I'm sure by the time they've taken a look at figure one from this paper, which neatly illustrates just what was going where, then uh, they'll be flocking to our hospital to have a go. But of course, something so complicated as a colonoscope shouldn't just be handled by anyone, and once you've got a piece of equipment, even as professional, then you want to make sure you know what you're doing with it. So you should probably, like, check the manual and stuff. In that vein, the literature prize this year goes to Thea Blackler, Rafael Gomez, Vesna Popovich, and M. Helen Thompson for documenting that most people who use complicated products do not read the instruction manual. I think my favourite thing about this is the title and the explanation of the title. Life is too short to RTFM, how users relate to documentation and excess features in consumer products. If you're not familiar with the acronym RTFM, they have noted that it stands for Read the Field Manual, which is not the F word I've usually heard. And at the Ig Nobel Prizes, making sure that everyone is very reverent and serious is absolutely essential to proceedings. 
don't let the opera that they run throughout the evening distract you at all. Now they have a lot of data here. This is a long, long paper where they get into who is not reading manuals, how old they are, at what point they start reading manuals, whether devices are more or less complex, and how likely that makes people to read the manuals, but I'll just give you the highlights to take away with you that younger people are less likely to read manuals. Men are significantly less likely to read manuals than women, and that the more complex something is, the more likely people are to eventually read the manual. But also, men are far more likely to claim that they definitely use all of the features of their consumer product, in spite of the fact that I'm fairly sure there's dozens of pieces of tech in our house that I'm only using a handful of the features on, because they're the ones I need it for. I think the key research highlight here of reading manuals appears to cause annoyance and negative emotional experiences is the key takeaway. They do in fact get into real depth about the fact that people who read the manual feel frustrated and have a negative experience and the reasons that might be behind that. One they particularly focus on is if you are reading a manual, it's because you are trying to find out how to do something. You want to be able to pick up the book, find the relevant information, make your piece of equipment do the thing you want it to do. And for a start, most people are more trained in reading to learn rather than reading to do. And the people who write the manuals aren't always writing them with reading to do in mind, even though that's the entire purpose of having a manual. But it's also noted that many modern devices don't even come with a manual anymore. They all direct you instead to an online help forum, where there might actually be several online help forums through the provider or the software developer for some specific kit. Even for things like ovens and microwaves, and you might have a couple of different pamphlets and PDFs to work your way through, which wouldn't, you know, gets a lot of people a lot more annoyed too. So, they're not winning the Peace Prize this year. We'll get to that in just a second. First of all, congratulations to the team from Zimbabwe, Tanzania, and the UK for their work on assessing the caloric significance of episodes of human cannibalism in the Paleolithic. It seems that due to most of our cultures having taboos about eating human flesh for, you know, revulsion reasons. It's assumed that most instances of cannibalism we have evidence for from the prehistoric were due to some kind of nutritional hardship, a famine or drought that means you can't access the food you normally would. However, no one's really assessed if that's a reasonable expectation of eating your nan, and other people have suggested it might be an entirely ritual practice that it might always have been for different reasons. So, James Cole had a nice in-depth look into how nutritious a typical human is. Unfortunately, there's lots of different bits in a typical human which you may or may not want to eat. The skeletal muscle, for example, will deliver about 800 calories per kilogram of muscle eaten. But most people aren't mostly skeletal muscle. You've got a lot of fat, skin, gristle, brain, bone, teeth, a lot of stuff which is maybe not so nutritious? Calorie-dense, let's say. And then the consumption of other parts of the body does bring with it the risk of transmitting certain diseases. You might have heard of some of them, like Kuru or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. These are especially nasty diseases. These are the kinds of things which genuinely keep me up at night, because prion diseases, ah, uh, it'll mess you up. And you can get it by just, like, sheer chance sometimes. It's terrifying. Don't look into it. The point being that 
as much as we think there is a revulsion to cannibalism and that it turns out to not be especially calorie dense and not a very good way of getting energy into your body compared to eating cow, ox, horse, other things that are typically around human settlements, it does keep happening. And yes, there is some discussion of whether prehistoric cannibalism was a common practice or an uncommon practice, again, because we generally find the topic revolting now. It was assumed that it must be quite unusual, but the fact that there is evidence at all of it from a period where we have pretty sparse evidence overall of what people were doing suggests it might have been quite widespread. And the fact that we've only, as a species, definitely stopped doing it as a cultural practice in recent years is because we worked out the stuff about the prions. Avoid prion disease at all costs. But anyway, back to the Peace Prize, going to a couple of teams from Spain and Colombia for their work on, well, road rage, specifically swearing and anger in Spanish drivers. The papers they've linked to here are maybe not the most effectively translated, so I won't be quoting them too heavily. I'll just skip ahead to the conclusion that there is a high prevalence of swearing and angry gesturing among Spanish drivers. Furthermore, most of the aggressive expressions related to shouting and cursing on the road are preceded by subjective factors such as stress, fatigue, and personality traits. So, stressed and angry people get angry in their cars in Spain. Unfortunately, because the text that we've got to refer to doesn't seem to have been translated by a person, it's pretty difficult to tease out what the takeaway is from this. The pain in Spain is not felt by those on trains? Oh, I should think they find a different kind of pain to feel. Moving on to one of those prizes which is given out under a non-standard title, the Reproductive Medicine Prize, to an international team using postage stamps to test whether the male sexual organ is functioning properly, as described in their study Nocturnal Penile Tumescence Monitoring with Stamps. Now, I remember reading in women's magazines more than once that the best way to find out if your penis-owning partner's impotence is psychological or physical is to just tape paper around the penis and see if it's broken in the morning. If it is a psychogenic impotency, then they will have nocturnal tumescence, as the uh, paper describes it, over the course of the night, because that's just a biological function, it happens, the paper ring will break. If it is a organic impotence, then that blood flow will not happen, there will be no swelling of said organ, and the paper ring won't break, meaning that it's not just something in their head. And that's basically the entire point of this research, by John Barry, Bruce Blank, and Michael Boyler, where instead of just using a ring of paper, they use, well, they say they're not nocturnal penile tumescent testing stamps, but they have put them alongside some postage stamps for comparison, and it's basically the same thing. It's the same concept, it's just that because postage stamps have got a legal function, they aren't the most convenient thing, so they made their own blank stamps. Yeah, apparently if you wanted to use actual postage stamps, you have to get permission from the Secret Service, Treasury Department, and if they are charity stamps, even the American Lung Association. I love how this demonstrates how product design happens. When we did product design in design technology at GCSE, we started by identifying a problem. The problem of how to measure nocturnal penile tumescence is only going to occur to urologists and the like, but they were unsatisfied with the standard mercury-filled strain gauge recorder, 
and observation of erection quality by either the sexual partner or another observer, and wanted to find a better, cheaper way of making your measurements. And when it comes to better and cheaper, then yeah, it works. Just out of a survey of several potent and impotent participants, the stamp rings, which is a little strip of, well, stamps, and then you wrap them round, you overlay one or one and a half stamps to fit, and then leave them on and repeat this for a couple of nights, up to about two months' worth, 62 nights. You can definitely gauge how often someone is achieving nocturnal tumescence. You can definitely see who or who is not achieving it, based on what they are reporting. They compared the cost of a three-night review in hospital with the mercury gauge and an attending doctor at $500, as opposed to three nights wrapping a strip of stamps around the penis in question at 30 cents. It works. It's cheap. You've got yourself an Ig Nobel Prize. Congratulations, guys. I mean, it did take them 28 years between publication and prize winning, but I'm sure the wait was worth it. We've got just one more prize winner for you from this year's celebrations. Going to, again, another international team from Canada, China, Singapore, and the USA, the Economics Prize on... Well, I'm going to read out the title because this whole thing is a wild ride. Writing a wrong. Retaliation on a voodoo doll symbolizing an abusive supervisor restores justice. Which has been published in Leadership Quarterly this year. Now we will start by quibbling with the terminology a little bit. Voodoo is a particular religion practiced primarily by people of African ancestry in the Caribbean and southern United States. And it's not really a term that should just be available for everyone to use. And if you asked most witches what they called the representational dolls of people they might use to do a spell, they'd call it a poppet, so we're going to do that. And they didn't even really use a physical representation of a supervisor in this. They were in fact using a digital one, a digital representation of a abusive supervisor for the staff of the Amazon M-Turks facilities. You know, you might have heard about these places where Amazon staff are worked and are treated like robotic automata it's not an especially nice place to be it seems they are there's a whole thing going on with the way that amazon is treating its staff at the moment and wouldn't you know that a lot of the people who are able to participate in this experiment were quite readily able to visualize an abusive supervisor someone in the work structure who is above them who has in the past abused their position and suffered an injustice to them the participants were directed to a digital puppet instructed to name it after their supervisor, and do some violence to it. The idea being that having some kind of retaliation would help them mediate their perceptions of injustice and prevent things from cycling out into a spiral of conflict, which it can happen, it has happened, it continues to happen in many workplaces around the world, that injustice visited on you from above is met with a proportional or disproportionate response from its victims. I am interested to see what further research on this might reveal. I'm particularly interested in the idea of making your representative puppets in the way that someone might if they were actually trying to do some magic. So using something to bind the doll to the person you're trying to get at, having made it yourself, that kind of thing. Maybe even whether just having a physical doll has unexpected results. I can't wait to hear that next time you're in the co-op or something, just... Bing, bong. 
Good. Susan, please make her way to head office. Susan, head office, we need a piece of your skin. Or hair, toenails, picture of you, whatever you've got going. Susan, just come on by. We're going to do some stuff. But for any employers out there who are worried that your subordinates might have perceptions of injustice towards you, you'll be happy to know that having a digital puppet, something which they could retaliate towards, but not actually do any damage to you personally, did in fact reduce their perception of injustice. If they start asking for your toenails, then that's up to you from that point, we're stepping away. And that is all from this year's Ig Nobel Prize as well. That's all of the prize winners. They have a webcast up where you can go and watch the whole thing, and you should really give that a go, if only to enjoy the opera which runs... I'm not joking, there's an opera in it which they had written and performed. They've got a Van de Graaff generator throwing out musical sparks. They have people singing about building huts and breaking them. Ooh, it's a hell of a way to spend an evening. And we'll leave you with one final part of the Ig Nobel Prize evening, they're 24-7 lectures. Some of the leading academics in their field were offered 24 seconds to explain a very complicated topic, and then to summarise it in seven words. So you can go away from this episode of Eureka Nerd thinking about the brain, or as Susanna Herculana Husel says, brains are expensive. Cooking allows more neurons. Dakota McCoy summarising super black in animals some animals are very, very, very black. Oliver Hart offers his feedback on incomplete contracts, saying that good contracts are remarkably difficult to write. Natalia Berry summing up the entire field of cardiology with the heart, engine of life, and love. And Pardis Sabeti describing viral evolution that viruses can change really fast. They're scary. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you can go back and listen to 2017's and 2016's winners and other science news from throughout the years at EurekaNerd.com, or you can drop us a line with your thoughts about who you'd like to make a poppet out of and just how much swearing you can accomplish in a Spanish taxi at EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the show and want to help other people find it, the best way of doing that is to leave us rates and reviews on your podcast platform of choice. If you want to help us offset the costs of hosting, of equipment, of all the other things, we have a Kofi account. You can pay me and I'll tell you all about kidney stones. I will tell you a lot about kidney stones. There is a lot I have to say about kidney stones. Mostly it's the word ow for a very long time. But yeah, if you want to help, buy us a coffee. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.